You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. My name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to welcome you to Sojourn. I want to encourage you to get involved in the ways that Marshall laid out. Uh, We'd love to get to know you and talk to you in the gallery after the gathering. Um, Given that this text is is kind of difficult, um, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open to that passage, because we're going to refer to it a lot as we walk through um, the muddy water that is that narrative. Um, If you're new with us here, or or if you've been coming around for a while, you know that for the last two weeks, we've we've been walking slowly through this letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, And this week, we we obviously continue to look at that letter, um, and we know that this letter is primarily Paul's uh, defense in clarify, clarification of the gospel. So Paul is writing to the Galatians not only to defend the gospel, but to clarify what the gospel is for them. So to recap, during the first week, Marshall led us through half of chapter one, um, where Paul is rebuking the Galatians because of their quickness to distort and believe a separate gospel, right, a false gospel. Paul reminds them, no, there's only one gospel, Right? The gospel being the good news and good work that Jesus has done on our behalf, his death and his resurrection from the grave. And he did that so that we might rise from our own graves, right? We are reminded that we can't remove things from the gospel, nor can we add things to the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul is reminding us. So the gospel means, uh, the good news of the gospel means that we don't have to work for salvation anymore, right? Because when we work for salvation, that brings self-righteousness, like I'm above everybody because I'm a good person and I look down on others. Right? So the gospel means that we don't do that anymore, but it also means that we get to rest in salvation um, instead of laying in our shame like we sometimes do as well, right? The belief that what Jesus did on the cross um, is good and all, but I'm too bad of a person for that to have saved me, right? So we, we know that the gospel also brings us up to the cross as it brings us down to the cross. When we do these things and subtract or add to the gospel, instead of realizing that Jesus meets us just where we are, then we have a distorted gospel that says Jesus isn't enough anymore, right? Then last week, Cole was up here preaching. He's one of our church planning residents, and he led us through the second half of chapter 1, where Paul builds on the reminder of one gospel by telling the Galatians how he was saved by that one gospel. As a reminder, Paul was a persecutor of Christians before, by revelation, God saved him. He says that I was chosen before the foundation of the world, just like we believers in the room are chosen. God has chosen us and set us apart for his grace which is incredibly freeing, right? That's what Paul's saying. This thought that not by what we do or not by what we fail to do does our salvation come, but it's God's revealing of himself, which by the way, he's pleased to do so. It's by God's revealing of himself to us that we are gifted the Holy Spirit and saved through the work of Jesus on the cross. So all who come to Christ are saved and chosen by God in his desperate yet majestic love, not by our own knowledge, not by our own gifting, not by our own works, 
So when we arrive at chapter 2, we're built, we're, Paul is building an argument and a swelling narrative, right? Paul has said, there's one gospel. This is how that one gospel came to me. And now as we turn to the narrative, we get to see that this gospel is persevering, right, through false gospels, and it's expanding as one true gospel. That through this story, Paul will be revealed to the Galatians and to us as a qualified steward of the one gospel. He shows us that we can trust the gospel that he's proclaiming. The same gospel proclaimed by the apostles of Jesus and the same gospel proclaimed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And finally this morning, we'll, we'll learn that not only is this gospel reliable, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, it was not lost, right? It's been delivered to us today. Through thousands of years in our hands, we still have the true unchanged gospel of Jesus. That God worked things early on in the days of the church so that we would have it here today, which is a grace and it's astonishing. So that's just the introduction. So let's, uh, let's pray uh, for grace because I need it. Father God, thank you for this morning. Um, how beautiful it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity Lord, we know that the church, as we say, is not an event to attend, but a people to belong to. And thank you for a people um, that we belong to. Lord, we know we're not perfect, right? We know that, Lord. But at the same time, we, we thank you and praise you for the perfection that you're, um, that you're carving us into in the image of your son. So we ask for grace. Lord, give us extra measure of that. Um, as we work through and un uncover what it is that you'd have us know through this text and through the whole of your scripture, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your word that we can turn to as a wellspring in times of distress and in times of comfort. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So this is, like, like I said, this is a largely narrative portion of the text. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not important for us, right? And, and beyond that, it's, it's a controversial narrative. And I don't mean it's controversial in the way that like, people read it now and argue about what it means or what, it, what Paul is trying to say. But I mean it's controversial in that the narrative itself is of a controversy. One that involves heresy and spies and betrayal um, and a lot of people saying a lot of different things. But Paul clears up in this account for us what, what the true gospel message is and that, um, again, he's building an argument to make sure that the Galatians not only understand that gospel but understand the authority that he has to preach that gospel. It's not just a narrative of his history, right? It's important that the Galatians understand that Paul and the apostles are united in the gospel. They have consensus regarding the true gospel, especially since the Galatians are tempted to believe a false one, right? So the consensus that they come against here is the same consensus that Paul is reminding them that they have against a false gospel. Um, so let me unpack that historically. 
Uh, Marshall touched on it two weeks ago, but um, this, is, this is the history. In Jerusalem, as the good news spreads of what Jesus has done, so, so the news that Jesus has lived a life we couldn't have lived, right, but we should have, died the death that we deserved, and raised from the dead in victory over that death, the news of that is spreading in Jerusalem. But as it does, there are people who begin to say, yeah, that's, that's all good. I, I agree with that. However, you also need to be circumcised for salvation. Right? So they're saying, yeah, like, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, you have to have faith in Jesus to be, to be saved. Also, you need to get circumcised. These people are called the Judaizers, right, or the circumcision party because they had such a cultural impact that, that they were almost a political party. There was, there was a party of them. But they're called the Judaizers, and um, they're saying that as Jesus provides the gospel, as Jesus provides for us salvation, there's an and. So it's not the gospel, but a gospel plus, right? Gospel plus works. Right? But, but the gospel that Paul proclaims and the one that the apostles proclaim, and the one that we believe now, is that it's just Jesus for all men and women, right? That we are justified through faith alone in Jesus. So we know, we know circumcision is a big deal for, for Jewish people in the Old Testament, right? It's a sign of entry into the covenant people of God. It's a sign that you're part of God's people. But now under the new covenant of Christ, Paul and the apostles are saying, we don't that's not the sign anymore, right? Jesus is how we are, we are entered into covenant community with God. So we are God's people by faith alone in Jesus, right? So currently, uh, I haven't found a lot of people in our culture that are struggling with the doctrine of circumcision. A lot of culture, uh, a lot of our culture probably doesn't even know that the Old Testament um, the Jewish people required circumcision to enter into covenant community. But it's true for us that, that the gospel plus is not what we believe, right? It's true for the Galatians. We don't believe in a gospel that adds extra things to do for salvation. So it's, it's important for us and it's important for the Galatians, but um, our culture does add other things to the gospel, right? I have plenty of friends, um, personally, this is a personal story, but I, I have plenty of friends who don't know the gospel and they think they do, right? Like, this scenario is common while I'm with my friends who are non-believers. Um, the conversation will, will somewhere in it shift to Jesus and the Bible and what Christians believe, and I will present the gospel as this, it's just about Jesus. We believe in faith alone, that, that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are saved, and there's nothing we can do to earn that. And I'll say, does that make sense? Do you understand that? I'll say, yeah, we, I get that. And I'll say, so, okay, so if you believe that, um, and you died and went to heaven, or, or you died, would you, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? And most of my friends say, uh, I think I'd go to heaven. And I say, cool, why would you go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. So they say, I understand the gospel. But then when I say, how will it save you? They say, oh, oh, it won't. I, I will save myself. 
that's the, the prevailing myth of our culture is that Christians are simply people who think they have to be good enough to get to heaven. And that is simply not the gospel that we believe. But it is the gospel that the Galatians are starting to believe. And that's why Paul has his arms up, right? And I think, when I think about that narrative happening so often with my friends who don't believe, um, I'm confronted with, with this thought that maybe they struggle to get the gospel because I don't live like I believe it. Right, like, if I'm honest with myself, I, I verbally and mentally affirm that, that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection are the only way that I'm saved. Yet at the same time, there's a narrative spinning in my head that says, you don't read enough. You don't pray enough. You don't give enough. You don't do enough good for people. I'm telling myself that I don't do enough, where the gospel tells me that, that I can never do enough, and there's nothing else to be done, right? What gospel am I believing there? It's not the gospel of Jesus, right? Because the gospel of Jesus frees me and gives me the gift of the Holy Spirit to change my nature and my will to want to read his word, to want to pray to God, to want to give of all I have, to serve the poor and the minorities and the refugees, the underprivileged. All right, so there's two natures in me. There's one that's the new nature that I've put on in Christ with the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes me want to do those things. And then there's a part of me, my flesh, that says, you don't do enough. So this is the type of belief, right, that, that the Galatians are believing. They think it's a gospel plus. And it's comforting to them, right? Just like it's comforting to us to really think that. It's comforting for them to think, yeah, like, but I also get to, I also have to get circumcised because that's how I really, that's really what will do it for me. That's what will save me. That's, that message has infiltrated the church in Jerusalem and infiltrated the church in Galatia. So Paul is hearing that they're influenced by the Judaizers and he's saying, it's not it. Let me show you a narrative of what happened to me when I went to Jerusalem. Let me show you the narrative of what God has done to preserve the gospel for, for you. For who? For us. He says, no, there's only one. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So I say God went through these links. Let's, let's look at the verse. Let's look at the text in verse 1 and 2. It says, then after 14 years, we believe this to be 14 years after his conversion, so 14 years of Paul preaching the true gospel. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went up because of a revelation. God brought Paul up, and I set before them privately to those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So God brings Paul to Jerusalem, right? Because God knows the danger of the false gospel. And Paul, having 14 years of preaching the true gospel under his belt, he knows that the unity of the church is at stake. 
right? It's being threatened by the Judaizers who are saying there's a counter gospel. And they're also trying to say, no, no, Paul and the apostles, the men who were with Jesus and Paul, they're preaching different things, right? So he goes not in shame, because it says he went in secret, but it's not because he's ashamed. It's because unity is at stake, right? Which is a, a typical tactic of Satan to, to stir disunity. And so Paul knows this, and he says, I, I got to go to the sort. I got to go, who, who are they trying to say I'm, I'm not united with? I got to go to them and make sure we're united in this. Because Paul knows if, if this message that there's a, a divided church gets out, then, then he might be running in vain from here on out. Because look, he'll, he'll go throughout all of Greece and everywhere he goes proclaiming the gospel, not gospel plus circumcision, but just the gospel, there will be people in the crowd that say, that's not what James, John, and Peter are saying. Right? They'll undermine him at every turn. The collective work that, that Paul is doing when he goes to Jerusalem, that God is, is pulling him towards Jerusalem to do, is to unite under the banner of the true gospel. So what happens in the meeting? Let's look in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they, that they might bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, right? So that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. So to paraphrase, Paul and Titus meet with the apostles and the elders of the church, the, the seemingly pillars of the faith, um, which we believe includes John, James, and Peter because they're mentioned later in the verse. But at the same time, spies slip in, Right? Spies slip in and they start to argue for the gospel plus. They start to say, it's gospel plus circumcision. But get this, in verse 5, Paul says that, that we, him and the apostles, don't move what? They don't move an inch. Not for a moment do they consider the notion that it would be gospel plus. Not for a moment do they consider the notion that Jesus' work on the cross for us was not sufficient enough. We also have to do something else. They never Yield to that. And really, the, the false gospel, uh, the gospel plus, the gospel plus works. He says, it wouldn't be good news for us. It wouldn't be good news for us today. It wouldn't be good news for the Galatians. It wouldn't be good news for those in Jerusalem. Why not? Because Paul says it brings, the goal of the false gospel is to bring slavery back not freedom. That's what false gospels do. They enslave. They don't free. Let, let's think of a, a famous false gospel in the prosperity gospel, right? Famous certainly here in Houston. The prosperity gospel says this, if you give more and you do better, then God will shower you with earthly riches. He will shower you with earthly wealth. He will give you money and things. But when those riches don't come and people get let go from their jobs and they're late on rent and they're churning to be better people, more moral, 
then they become enslaved to their works. Right? That's what it does. The prosperity gospel is so attractive because it makes sense culturally that we would work for salvation. Right? And it's attractive because when you don't reap the benefits of wealth, then you just need to do more. And it's enslaving because it's a cycle that you never break free from unless you're super wealthy. And then you're encouraged to do it more because you'll just get more jets or yachts. Slavery. It's not good news. The prosperity gospel and saves because it's a gospel plus. But the freedom in Christ is what the gospel brings. Right? It, it brings freedom in Christ to do good. How, how do we balance that tension that we're not enslaved, but we're free, but verses like James 2 say that faith without works is dead. Right, so really, really these things don't contradict each other. Um, on the contrary, James makes the point, he makes this point, that because we have freedom in Christ and we're gifted the Holy Spirit, then our natures and our wills will change and we'll want to give of our time and our resources. We'll want to serve the marginalized, serve the refugees, serve the widow and the orphan and the poor. James says, if you don't feel the longings for just, look, when you get the Holy Spirit, if you don't feel the longings for justice and mercy for your oppressed brothers and sisters, then you might not be saved. He's, te he's telling us to test ourselves, right? If the freedom of Christ doesn't spur us on to care for each other, then that's not, that's not freedom. We haven't found it. James never says that these works lead to faith or lead to salvation, right? He never says it in, in his letter, uh, but we also know that he doesn't believe it because he's there. In this Galatians passage, James who writes James, is sitting there listening to the gospel of Paul, and he affirms it. Look in verse 6. He says, And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Right? Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the true gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, they joined me in fellowship. So Paul... Here's what Paul does. He puts Titus, an uncircumcised Greek Christian, in front of the Jewish elders and the apostles, James, John, and Peter. And he says, this is the gospel, that Jesus has lived a life we couldn't live, died a death we should have died, and risen in victory over it. And that's true for me, Paul, the circumcised Jew, and it's true for Titus, the uncircumcised Greek and their response is, Paul, you are exactly right. right they have nothing to add. There's no, they don't add anything. It's not a gospel plus. They say, that's, not only is that right, that's the gospel we're proclaiming too. We're just doing it to the Jews here in Jerusalem, but you're sent to the Greeks. But it's the same gospel. There's not a second one. There's nothing for us to add. They added nothing. They see that Paul has been entrusted with the true gospel, not the gospel plus. And Paul reminds us in his small aside 
when he says, what they were makes no difference to me, that it's important for the unity of the church that these guys are on the same page, but in the end, we don't worship the apostles, we worship God. So if they think a contrary doctrine of gospel works is right, then they should be cursed. Who they are, that doesn't matter. But the unity of our church matters. So why is this important for us? Why, why is this important for the Greeks and the Galatians? He says it in verse 5, so that the truth would be preserved for us, for you. So that truth would be preserved for you. Now, why is it important that that truth is preserved? Um, Paul, later in life, writes a letter to um, his, his kind of mentee. It's almost a father-son relationship. He writes a letter to, to Timothy. He writes two, actually, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. But in the second letter, um, he says this. In chapter 4, if you want to turn there, you can. In chapter 4, right there in verse 1, he says this to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge the living of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So that, that is true for Timothy as, as it ever has been for us, right? That's true for us. Our culture, especially in the Twitter age, right? We, we can simply choose to follow those who scratch our ears, meaning we can, we can follow those who only agree with what we feel, right? We can mute those who don't affirm how we feel, which is why we need the truth of the gospel to bear its weight on us, not the other way around, right? We conform to what God says. We let God, if he's God, we let God define himself to us, We can't twist and mold scripture to say what it doesn't. Nor can we pick and choose a verse that's, um, that just out of context affirms what we're trying to say, right? Nor will we ever do away with all scripture and simply circle up and talk about what we feel. Paul and the apostles went through great lengths to make sure that this gospel was delivered to us today. They had very little to gain from doing so. Right? Most of them died to do so. It's important that we understand that the, the Judaizers, this, this false gospel group, this group saying that it's gospel plus circumcision, that was very popular in the day. That was the, in Jerusalem where everybody has been circumcised and the rest of the world hasn't, and they've been told they're God's people, culturally, in Jerusalem, people are saying, yeah, that's the one I believe, the one where you have to be circumcised, because that's me. 
right? It's just not, it's not popular. At least culturally at the time, but next week we'll see Peter get tempted to forgetting it, right? So, but that's next week. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit and what God did in revealing himself to the pillars of the faith, we have the true gospel, unchanged. So as we finish up, let's, let's read in verse 9. Uh, it says this, And when James, uh, who we talked about before, James, Cephas, who's also known as Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that grace, the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to do one thing, to remember the poor, which I was eager to do. So we have James, the brother of Jesus, like we said before, Cephas, known as Peter, same person, and John, three guys who Paul says these guys are the perceived pillars of the faith. These guys extend their hand in fellowship with, with Paul and Barnabas and Titus. Not, not a, a kitschy like, yeah, let's shake on it, sounds good but a, a bond of brotherhood for the truth and preservation of the true gospel to the nations, right? They join together in this message. And, and earlier when we talked about James who said, faith without works is dead, right? We, he's here proclaiming the true gospel. And this last verse is a reminder of what James says in his letter, right? They say, oh, and Paul? Don't forget about the poor. And Paul's response is like, duh, I was really eager to do that already. Thanks for the reminder, but that's what faith does. Right? Don't forget the poor. So not only did they affirm the faith of Paul, they affirmed that this faith frees him and us to bring about God's mercy through good works. Right? So we're free to serve, not enslaved to work for salvation. So Paul, we find out, is not running in vain, right? He, the gospel, the true gospel that the apostles have leads to unity. It doesn't lead to division, right? The true good news of the cross perseveres. So because of this, uh, of this specific event and narrative and many, many thousands of other specific events and narrative, we have the true gospel of what Jesus did on our behalf today. We have it. And we could spend days discuss, we could, there's courses and entire uh, degrees devoted to the history of the church. We could, we could spend days debating manuscripts and translations. Um, but here's the thing, the, the Holy Spirit is the only one who will make this transform from foolishness to wisdom for us, right? No one will be convicted that this is truth unless the Holy Spirit does it in them. But like we said, the good news is that God, God calls us to himself and he's pleased to do so. Our culture is attempting to and will always change the gospel, right? They will always try and tell us what we believe. Paul warned Timothy about it in 2 Timothy 4. The culture of the Judaizers attempted to change it 
right when the church was gaining traction. But Paul defends it. The apostles unite around it. And because of that unity, we have the gospel today. Our culture on so many socially relevant issues will tempt us to believe a different gospel. And it's ultimately the oldest trick in the book for Satan, right? It's the oldest tactic of Satan, who in the garden as the serpent hisses out, did God really say that? Did God really say you can't eat from the tree? No, I don't think he did. What is he hissing at us now through our culture? It's the same. Did God really say that? Did God say that that drunkenness is sinful? Or did God say that about marriage and sexual ethics? Did God say that? Or did God really say that those who don't go through Jesus will go to hell? Right, this is the temptation. Did God really say what I think he said? And I'm not saying we shouldn't investigate those things, right? But we have to We have to, if we believe in the God of the universe, we have to go through a lens that lets him tell us what he really said. This isn't a a mystery. It's been revealed in the gospel. We can't filter it through the popular social ethic of the day. We have to filter it through the unending, fought for and preserved truth of the gospel. So at Sojourn, sometimes we'll preach sermons on topics. Like we'll preach a giving sermon or a a discipline sermon or something like we just did in in Proverbs. But most of the time, this is our promise here, is most of the time we will spend our mornings on Sunday walking slowly through a book or letter of the Bible. And we don't pick and choose because we need the Bible to bear its weight on us, right? Right? not for us to choose what we want to say and sprinkle an encouraging verse in there that's out of context. We need the Bible to bear its weight of truth on our lives. If we don't do that, then we are going to create a gospel plus. Right? And make no mistake, don't, don't be led astray here that, that these letters of Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, that they aren't the words of God. They are the words of God right? Even though the men who pinned them are imperfect, the Holy Spirit, in unity with the Father and the Son, breathed them. And so it's not just the red text in your Bible that's God's words, it's the whole of it. God spoke to us through this. When we read it, we read the words of God. That's why um, You know, I've heard people say before, well, God in this moment told me that. And that might be true. But every morning when we spend time in here, God tells me something. I don't need the experience or the emotion. Although those things with the Holy Spirit affirm what God says in me, right? But my first filter, my first lens through which I I view the world is is through the Bible. It's like C.S. Lewis says, I believe in God like I believe in the sun rising. Not only do I see the sun rising, but by the sun rising, I see everything. The gospel illuminates all human nature for us, right? 
We need God's word to bear its weight on our lives. Because we want our children's children and their children's children and their children's children and their children's children until Jesus comes back. We want them to have the true gospel. And our unity will make it so this past week, uh, a few of our staff members went to Nashville for a global gathering of churches that are committed to planting churches around the true gospel. And more than any message or breakout section at that or breakout session at that conference, what was mostly inspiring to me and us was that around the globe, the gospel of Jesus is expanding. It's not diminishing. It's true and it's multiplying. So when we feel like in our context that it's not multiplying, it's probably because we have a short-sighted bubble, right? But the, the truth is that in the East, and in international context, and even in minority groups here in the United States, the gospel is spreading. That should cause us to rejoice, and it should cause us to pray that we would experience revival in our cultural context as well. So as we wrap up, uh, to the unbeliever in the room, let me say this. Like Cole preached last week, it might just be that the God of the universe chose you before the foundation of the world. And if you're in the room and you're an unbeliever, I'm tempted to believe that that is the case because something brought you here. And my challenge is, would you grab hold of it? Would you, would you hear and see and taste the true gospel of a God who defines himself to us? The gospel says that we're not perfect, but we're being perfected. The gospel says that we're not just a group that feels morally superior to the world, but we're refugees, humbled and kneeling at the cross, clinging to the feet of Jesus. We're far from perfect as Christians, but, but our God in Jesus is perfect. It's by his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his majestic resurrection that we stand here in unity, believers in the room, excuse me. And we stand in unity, not only as believers in the room or believers in Houston, but with brothers and sisters around the globe where this gospel is true and expanding and alive. So if you want to stand with us, unbeliever, then your call is our call, which is to bow at the throne of the king of all kings, worthy of our worship, the only one. And to the believer in the room, I say this, there's one gospel. God chose you before you could lift a finger and do anything from it. And he has delivered you, right, from slavery and preserved his truth in the gospel for you. Do you believe that? Or are you like me? Are you like me, tempted to hear the serpent say, did God really say blank? If you're tempted to hear that, ask God for help. Ask him to define himself to you.
and ultimately go to Scripture and let God's Word bear its weight on you. Not your emotions, not our culture, but God defines and reveals himself to us through his Word. Seek his truth there. The Bible says those who seek will find. We can open it and we can read the words of God. Let's not take that gift for granted. And if we believe that this is good news, then we won't take it for granted, right? I love Jesus. I'm thankful for him. This is good news for me. It's good news for you. I believe that. I do believe that. Even though I don't act like it sometimes, even though the serpent hisses at me sometimes, I believe that. Nothing more than the cross will save us, which is everything. Nothing less than the cross is for us, which, which is nothing without Jesus. So as we come to the table, let's, let's remember what Jesus has done and worship him because of it. Would you pray with me?